Well, welcome aboard once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you tonight on the evening of April 16th, 2020, marking exactly a month that I have been in self-imposed isolation in my uh, cramped apartment in New York City's East Village. And, uh, you know, it also uh, is now four years since uh, the election season of 2016 that I have been anticipating that the election of 2020 was not going to be a normal election, that 2020, in fact, was going to be a cataclysmic year in American politics. And I don't mean cataclysmic in any kind of hyperbole sense. I mean cataclysmic, like probably the most cataclysmic year in American politics since 1861, if you get my drift. So, uh, you know, I've been anticipating all these years that just on the basis of, you know, Trump's personality and his evident fascistic ambitions, that uh, the election was not going to go down peacefully in 2020, that no matter the results, Trump was going to refuse to leave office and uh, was going to attempt to um, establish himself as president for life and actually establish, you know, a a dictatorship in the United States of America and try to pull off, you know, a a so-called alto golpe as they called it when Alberto Fujimori did it in Peru back in 1992, a self-coup. So um, I am feeling more and more vindicated in this prediction by the minute, unfortunately. And uh, these nightmare scenarios have become all the more plausible in light of, uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. With I mean, it's a really absurd irony that with all of these... Um, really utterly draconian police state measures being imposed all over the world in the name of, um, you know, enforcing the lockdown, that, uh, you know, Trump is actually claiming total executive power, in his own words. When you're the president of the United States, your power is total, quote, unquote. Trump is doing so not in the name of enforcing the lockdown, but in the name of lifting the lockdown. (laughs) My God, what an absolutely absurd irony. But um, whether, as in the Philippines or Hungary or Serbia, it's being done in the name of enforcing the lockdown, or as in, you know, what what Trump seems to be uh, contemplating here in the United States, it's done in the name of lifting the lockdown... (laughs) Uh, it still amounts to, um, you know, the seizure of extraordinary powers. And it's still of, uh, you know, a very dubious um, legality and constitutionality. And it still uh, is all being done, you know, under the guise of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And uh, it all portends very, very poorly for the survival of democracy, you know, both uh, in the United States and worldwide. And after having made that outrageous statement uh, just a couple of days ago, April 13th, when someone is president of the United States, the authority is total, quote unquote, which of course it is not. It's a federal system. The states also have power. It's particularly ridiculous to be hearing this from, uh, you know, a Republican. We were always, you know, Republicans are always talking about states' rights. And all of a sudden we've got a Republican president who wants to, you know, arrogantly run roughshod over states' rights. And in addition to that, even within the federal apparatus, there are so-called checks and balances. No, the president does not have total authority in a democracy. 
There is the legislative branch. There is the judicial branch. It's only under a dictatorship that the president has total authority. Come on. Anyway, after he made that statement a couple of days ago, just yesterday, April 15th, he said that he is um, considering adjourning Congress, quote unquote, so that he can make recess appointments, citing the partisan obstruction, quote unquote, preventing nominees from uh, receiving hearings in the Senate. Now, first of all, it's pretty obvious that his aim here is not merely to make recess appointments. His aim here is to suspend those other branches of government so that he can actually uh, instate dictatorial rule ahead of the election with the country, you know, in in total crisis and the whole world in total crisis. And, uh, of course, he does not have the constitutional authority to do this. Now, he is pointing to um, a provision in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution, which does give the president the power to um, either convene or adjourn both chambers of Congress, quote, on extraordinary occasions, quote, unquote. But uh, the adjourning, rather than the convening, can only take place when, quote, uh, there is disagreement between them, that is, between the two houses, between uh, the House and the Senate, to quote from the Constitution, in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, end quote. And of course, that condition has not been meant. So it's just a naked power grab. You know, it's not constitutional. And in fact, that is really the greater threat here, that there is actually going to be, between now and November, a state of exception, as it's called, in the United States. And that the Constitution and all, you know, guarantees for uh, due process and legality and cover of law are just going to be completely abrogated in the um, current atmosphere of crisis and emergency. A possibility by no means to be dismissed. And I hate to tell you this, but even in a, you know, a so-called best case scenario, if you will, and there actually is, you know, some kind of uh, return to a post-pandemic normality, it is going to be, and this is practically certain, I'm afraid, this is not conjecture, it is going to be concomitant with the imposition of a totalizing surveillance state, such as certainly this country has never seen, and maybe that the world has never seen, where all of the plans which are being broached now, and not just by, you know, the Trump executive branch, but by the National Institutes of Health and the policy think tanks and so on, not just in this country, but all over the world. They all foresee a um, ubiquitous tracking of the movements of the population through a, uh, an app which will be downloaded to, uh, to people's cell phones. And those who have, uh, have been found to come into contact with anyone um, carrying COVID-19 can then be ordered to be placed in, quote, social quarantine enforced by GPS tracking. This is already being done in Taiwan and Singapore. It's under study in Europe, by, uh, by the, uh, particularly by Germany, and it's under study in, uh, in the United States as well right now. And um, it's exactly the kind of system which, in fact, has been um, implemented in China, where, uh, you know, Wuhan, the Chinese city where the outbreak began, late last year, 
You know, now the economy is starting to come back to life after more than two months of draconian lockdown. But the movement of residents is being uh, restricted according to a color-coded system of cell phone alerts. Those with a green code have freedom of movement and may pass through the frequent police checkpoints. Those with a yellow code are found to have been in contact with an infected person and face continued restrictions on their movement. And those with a red code are deemed to be at high risk of being infected and remain essentially quarantined. So this is the kind of system which is already in place in Wuhan. And, uh, you know, even under a, again, a best case scenario where there actually is some kind of, you know, return to quote unquote normality, you know, this is going to be the new normal all over the world, it appears, in the United States and in Europe and in much of Asia, certainly. It's already, you know, well underway. You know, the, 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 the plans are being drawn up and are on the very cusp of being implemented. And I don't know what this is going to mean for me because I'm one of like, you know, these last holdouts who refuses to carry a cell phone. Are they going to make it mandatory that I carry a smartphone? That's going to be an interesting test case because right now there isn't anything in the law that says that you have to carry a uh, a smartphone. And, you know, I'm willing to be a, a test case and um, take it to court and see if they can, you know, legitimately force me to carry a cell phone. So uh, all quite frightening. We're looking at a very, very, very dystopian situation, even under a best-case scenario, and putting aside all of the um, even more nightmarish potentials for, uh, you know, a real state of exception here in, you know, the United States, the so-called leader of the free world, and, and the imposition of a Trumpian dictatorship, which we're obviously also quite clearly on the cusp of. I mean, if you're denying the, the risk at this point, you just aren't paying attention. And boy, do I ever feel like Cassandra, because I've been um, predicting this kind of thing really since the Reagan era, <laughs> when I became aware of uh, the plans which were drawn up by um, <clears throat> then-Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North of the uh, National Security Council for suspending the Constitution in the event of a, uh, of a U.S. invasion of Nicaragua. But, you know, then it was just kind of like, you know, this, uh, this, kind of, this idea which was being contemplated in the shadows, you know, literally and quite notoriously in the, uh, the, the basement of the White House where Oliver North had his, had his office. But, you know, now it's in the headlines. Now it's like it's entered, it's entered the mainstream. If now, if you don't see that the risk is real, you just aren't paying attention. And again, you know, I've been predicting this kind of thing under under Trump since even before he was elected, since 2016. And seeing it as far more of a threat now than it was back in the Reagan era, much more. And uh, again, boy, oh boy, do I feel like Cassandra. I feel more like Cassandra every day. I remember back when uh, the um, the lockdown was imposed in Wuhan. Back in January, I remember writing on Facebook, you know, I bet I'll live to see the day that New York is under lockdown. I didn't th think that it was going to happen that quickly. But man, do I feel like Cassandra. feel more like Cassandra every day. Remember the mythological Cassandra, Greek mythology? She's the one who was warning about the Trojan War. And everybody says, oh, don't be ridiculous. Greece and Troy are never going to go to war with each other. Don't be an alarmist, Cassandra. Chill out. <clears throat> She was cursed by the gods of being able to foretell the future, but 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 nobody ever believing her. <laughs> Boy, do I feel like Cassandra. Anyway, uh, this um, you know best case scenario dystopia of a totalizing surveillance state 
is also concomitant with uh, a massive hypertrophy of the digital Borg and its final eclipse of the last vestiges of print media, real life, as it's called, and, you know, the the meat world. And that, you know, so-called distance learning or distant learning, as they're calling it, which to my mind is an oxymoron, is just going to become the norm. Nobody is ever actually going to, you know, attend a classroom or a campus again. Newspaper delivery could become a thing of the past. You know, actual newspapers printed on paper could become a thing of the past. And I'm hearing more and more extremely ominous reports that even the U.S. Postal Service could collapse before this is all over. More and more lawmakers down in Washington are warning that the Postal Service is going to have to shut down in June if there isn't some kind of a bailout. And thus far, Trump has been roadblocking any kind of bailout for the Postal Service. The pandemic, you know, uh, recovery bill, the COVID-19 recovery bill, which was just which was just passed, specifically excluded any kind of a bailout for the Postal Service, with Trump threatening to veto it if such a uh, a bailout was was included. So obviously his plan is to do away with or privatize the Postal Service. So when we finally go back to some kind of quote unquote normality, your local uh, neighborhood post office may not be there anymore. And it may, no longer, it may no longer be possible to mail letters. Amidst all of this, <clears throat> it's been really painful to see Trump attempting to um, scapegoat China and the World Health Organization for his own failings. And uh, the reason it's been particularly painful is that uh, even though Trump is doing it for completely cynical, self-interested reasons, and even though he himself is guilty of extreme criminal negligence in his handling of this crisis, all of his accusations against China and the World Health Organization happen to be true. And nothing gives me more angst than Donald J. Trump being right. So I want to make clear from, you know, the very beginning that, uh, You know, I think that Donald Trump should face war crimes charges for his handling of this crisis. He should be sent to the Hague. He should be sent to the International Criminal Court, to which, you know, the United States is not a signatory, so there are uh, jurisdictional problems there. But arguably, uh, you know, his negligence in this crisis has had international impacts, maybe... uh, there can be some kind of a legal argument for extending jurisdiction to the United States. Certainly, I also think that Xi Jinping should similarly be brought up on war crimes charges. This may not be exactly war, but it's, it's the equivalent of war. Trump and Xi alike are responsible for tens of thousands of deaths in this crisis. And probably Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, should also be brought up on international charges. Definitely these figures must be held accountable. That said, I also want to make clear that Trump's move to cut off U.S. funding to the World Health Organization at this moment would only compound his culpability and his, and his criminality. Because whatever we may think of the leadership of the World Health Organization, and whatever we may think of the, um, 
of its blunders and cynicism in its handling of this crisis. And believe me, I am very critical. The World Health Organization remains an essential bulwark against this pandemic spreading to the African continent. And there is clearly the imminent risk of it hitting Africa, where health infrastructure is very, very limited indeed, and the services of the World Health Organization are going to be absolutely critical and essential. And if Trump, you know, debilitates the World Health Organization by cutting off U.S. funding at this moment, it is merely going to compound his moral culpability in this whole crisis, possibly, you know, compounded a thousandfold. So, you know, again, as I always emphasize, it's really important that we don't get confused by all of the uh, propaganda games which are being played by the rival great powers on the planet and hold them all to accountability. I mean, here in the United States, you know, Trump has been, you know, practically consciously inflaming anti-Asian racism by referring to the Chinese virus. And just recently, we've seen in the the city of Guangzhou, in southern China, African immigrant workers are being uh, irrationally stigmatized and evicted from their housing and so on, because they're believed to be carrying COVID-19 quite baselessly, it seems. And media and social media there are actually referring to it as the African virus. So around it goes. If you were looking for any more, uh, you know, evidence of the inherent rationality of racism, there you have it. It's also been extremely interesting to see figures in the Chinese foreign ministry actually citing this fly-by-night conspiracy theory website, Global Research, out of Canada which, you know, I've been criticizing for years as, you know, spreading all this vile disinformation about everything, about the war in Syria, the crimes of Bashar Assad, 9-11, etc., etc. And now their claims that the, uh, you know, COVID-19 was actually, uh, you know, created in a laboratory as a uh, United States biological warfare agent, in a conspiracy against China, their claims have actually been taken up. Actually, global research has actually been cited. This fly-by-night conspiracy website has actually been directly cited on Twitter by the Chinese foreign ministry. And of course, you have uh, you know the claims which uh, are coming from the opposite camp, which have been floated in uh, you know the yellow press here in the United States, such as the uh, the New York Post that uh, the COVID-19 was actually created in a Chinese laboratory, and that there's actually, there is a high-level um, biotech laboratory in the city of Wuhan, it appears. You know, I have to uh, state that I'm, uh, you know, I'm agnostic about the, the possibility that COVID-19 was actually created in a laboratory, whether it was, you know, the Chinese laboratory in uh, Wuhan or the American laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland. I'm, I'm agnostic about it because I'm not in a position to know. And anybody tells you that they are in a position to know is full of beans and you shouldn't get taken in by it. But I will tell you this, what's far more dangerous than, you know, idle theorizing and pretending to know more than you actually do. What's far more dangerous still is the, uh, you know, actual conscious weaponizing, the political weaponizing, propaganda weaponizing of this crisis. 
and many of the people who are throwing these claims around on either one side or the other, the Chinese side or the American side, are doing that. They are exploiting this crisis to demonize the other side. And that is dangerous and has to be repudiated. Now, if you want to take a dispassionate look at the evidence that COVID-19 came out of a laboratory, fine, go ahead. To me, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Because, you know, like I always say, maybe the Reichstag fire really was burnt down by a, uh, a lone, you know, adventurist, communist nut job named Marinus van der Lubbe. Doesn't make any difference. It was still deftly exploited by the Nazis. And it still lubricated their seizure of power. And even if it really was just some communist lone nut who burned down the Reichstag in 1933, it wouldn't make Nazism any less evil. So, <laughs> to me, the whole question is kind of neither here nor there, especially given that it's, it's, it's unknowable. It's obviously something that historians are going to be arguing about for generations to come, assuming the human race survives, which I would not take to be a given at this point. Just like, you know, they're still arguing about the Reichstag fire, and they're still arguing about the explosion of the battleship Maine, and et cetera, et cetera. All right, on the subject of conspiracy theory, just to get it out of the way, I am going to uh, mention all of the uh, theorizing about 5G technology, possibly having a, um, a link to COVID-19. And obviously, a lot of very, very irresponsible claims have been made. Uh, but I have to say that, uh, you know, despite the fact that irresponsible claims are going to be made, there may in fact be a legitimate case that there is some kind of a link between 5G and COVID-19. Okay? Now, before you turn off this podcast in disgust, I want to direct you to something which I just wrote about it, which appears today on the uh, the website of The Village Sun. That's thevillagesun.com, local uh, community news source here in um, lower Manhattan, where I've got a piece entitled, New Yorkers Stand Up to Wireless Tyranny, basically uh, relating my own struggle with um, with Verizon to get them to maintain the copper wires for landlines, which they are um, mandated to do by New York state law. And I'm examining the uh, legalistic artifices by which they have been able to get away with defying the law and letting the landlines deteriorate, and what in fact is their um, their aim in doing so. And their aim in doing so is to um, get everybody onto wireless and thereby cease to be a public utility. Because right now, they're a public utility only in terms of um, providing landline service. And once they get everybody off of the off of the landlines and onto wireless, they're no longer going to be a public utility, and they will basically have no responsibilities to the consumers at all. So that's basically what the piece was about. You know, a fundamental right, which is actually goes all the way back to the notion of common carriage in English common law, is being undermined by the plan to get us all off of um, off of landlines and onto wireless. So. All of you people who are just going along with this, you're actually part of the problem. But uh, <clears throat> there is a discussion at the end, 5G and electromagnetic pollution, that I will briefly read from. Rarely even asked, or what are the potential health impacts of living immersed 24-7 in the ubiquitous electromagnetic radiation necessary for a wireless society? Physicians for Safe Technology, in its page on 
wireless technology and public health, writes that, quote, a precautionary approach is essential to reduce potential harm to the public and the environment. The increasing use of wireless devices and computers has spawned an abundance of research revealing a variety of health concerns, including cancer, neurodevelopmental harm, neurodegeneration, and reproductive abnormalities. According to Physicians for Safe Technology, studies have indicated that radio frequency EMR, electromagnetic radiation, the kind used in 5G, replacing the microwave EMR used in previous versions, quote, has broad effects on the body and negatively affects sperm, ovaries, liver, kidneys, the immune system, emphasis added, melatonin production, DNA, protein synthesis, the blood-brain barrier, and nerve cell viability and function. Alas, the possible health implications of 5G are at the moment getting snide media coverage due to these celebrity-hyped theories about a link to the COVID-19 pandemic. Arson attacks on cell phone towers in Britain have not helped. But then I quote Ellen Osuna of the group NYC 5G Wake Up Call, who does not buy the crude theories being proffered, but does fear that a proverbial baby is being thrown out with the bathwater. Quote, the media accounts are not looking at the more nuanced claims, she asserted. 5G and its forerunner, 4G, could be among many factors, such as air pollution, that are attacking our immune systems and perhaps making us more vulnerable to viruses like COVID-19. They are painting anyone questioning the effects of all this electromagnetic pollution as saying that COVID is caused by 5G, end quote. Studies have already revealed the correlation between places hardest hit by COVID-19 and those most impacted by air pollution. So theories about a similar link to electromagnetic pollution may not be that implausible. All right, I'm going to go no further at the moment. You can read my piece online at The Village Sun, New Yorkers Stand Up to Wireless Tyranny. Again, the notion that, you know, COVID-19 is quote-unquote caused by 5G is, of course, nonsense. The notion that it is exacerbated, that the actual, you know, ailments associated with COVID-19 are exacerbated by 5G, I believe mandate more study. That's all I will say about it at the moment. I am not out here spreading any kind of alarmism about it, and there are plenty of other arguments against 5G. And I'm just going to give a little tip of the hat to the town of Keene, New Hampshire, which has actually passed an ordinance barring the installation of 5G equipment within their borders as have many towns in Italy. Unfortunately, due to the more pro-corporate regulatory atmosphere here in the United States, the, uh, the ordinance in Keene, New Hampshire, is probably going to be challenged in court by the, by the wireless companies. It's going to be an interesting case to watch. Okay, getting back to the whole question of COVID-19 here. Well, what, as somebody once asked, is to be done? In the last three weeks, typically the U.S. has about 55 total deaths, 55,000 total deaths a week, total. And I'm not talking about COVID or flu, I'm talking about total deaths, 55,000 a week. Over the last three weeks, it's been 45,000. <laughs> we have 10,000 fewer deaths a week. Why? We're not driving. And the homicide rate has gone down. So that's it. Just stay inside, never leave your house, and you'll live longer. Okay, did you catch that quote? That was um, 
Dr. Paul Offit, infectious disease specialist, being interviewed on the vlog. Z Dog MD, Z D O G G M D, informing us that uh, over the past three weeks that the United States has essentially been on lockdown, the total number of deaths per week has actually dropped from 55,000 to 45,000. Isn't that interesting? And that is due largely to people being off the roads. There is considerably less highway carnage. So uh, here's where I just want to end, you know, after all of this ultra, ultra, ultra apocalyptic stuff that I've been spewing here, I just want to end on something of a note of hope, okay? Because, you know, we've all seen the, uh, the news reports and the videos online, you know, wildlife has recovered during the period of the past few weeks that the world has essentially been on lockdown. Air pollution has abated. Water pollution has abated. In northern India, the Himalayas, which are usually completely obscured by smog, are visible again for the first time in decades. The waters of the Ganges are drinkable again for the first time in generations. So, you know, isn't it funny that, you know, all this time me and, you know, fellow eco-freaks have been saying, look, the world is headed towards apocalypse due to our daily use of fossil fuels. There is an imminent, complete collapse of the global biosphere to the point where it will no longer be able to sustain human civilization. And the people that run the world, the best of them, not the people like Donald Trump who got us out of the Paris Climate Accord and are completely, you know, denying the problem entirely, but, you know, the more responsible world leaders have been hemming and hawing around with, you know, carbon trading and uh, all the other completely half-hearted and insufficient measures which were in the Paris Climate Accord. When what obviously needs to happen is that there needs to be an immediate cold turkey shutdown of the fossil fuel economy. And of course, you know, everybody who's advocated that has been told, oh no, it's impossible because it would cause economic chaos and blah, 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 blah. Don't be an extremist. You can't do that. Blah, 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 blah. Well, isn't it interesting? Now, all of a sudden, that the imminent apocalyptic scenario is a pandemic, which could claim hundreds of thousands of lives immediately, like within the coming weeks all of a sudden it becomes possible to shut down the fossil fuel economy. Whereas when the crisis is global ecological collapse and requires just a little bit of a leap of imagination that it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of lives, like maybe a generation down the line or a few decades rather than a few weeks down the line, you know, then, oh no, we can't shut down the global economy. That's extremist. That's out of the question. Well, look, we've done it. We've done it. And that's where there actually is an element of opportunity in this crisis that we are facing. Now, of course, the economic pain which it's causing is very real. And we could actually be looking, in addition to, you know, another potential (laughs) 
1933 type situation or 1861 type situation, we could be looking at another 1929 type situation. And we could actually be, be at the on the doorstep now of not just a recession like um, 2008, but an actual depression like 1929. And that is why it is necessary that we demand and actually organize enough popular power to be able to press our demand that the pain for this crisis and the transition that it demands not be borne by the working class, not be borne by the commoners and by the people who can least afford it, but be taken off of the hides of the rich and corporate power and those in society who can most afford it. And this is where, you know, the calls for a so-called Green New Deal take on far greater urgency. But I say that uh, a Green New Deal does not go far enough. What we actually need is we need a controlled collapse of the global industrial leviathan and the fossil fuel economy. And what I mean by a controlled collapse is a collapse in the sense that economies are going to become localized to the degree possible. And the use of cars, airplanes, and international containerized shipping is going to be dramatically reduced, if not done away with completely. That agriculture, to the maximum extent possible, is going to become localized and organic and that the vast seas of asphalt, particularly in this country, but also throughout the world, which have been turned over to the private automobile, are going to be reseeded with grass and trees and garden plots and reclaimed as public space for pedestrians. And the society, with all due haste, I'm talking about in the months to come, is going to return to the human scale worldwide. And yet this is going to be done in such a way that everybody is taken care of and that everybody continues to have enough to eat, which they don't now. So I'm not even going to say continues to. Just everybody has enough to eat. Everybody has access to potable water and everybody has access to medical care, regardless of their class or station. That, I humbly or not so humbly submit, is what needs to be done. There, in very broad terms, is a goal that we should be struggling for with all due haste. And I submit that at this extremely grim moment for humanity, probably the most dire moment of my entire life that I have witnessed in my 50 plus years on this planet, there are utopian possibilities as well as apocalyptic ones. Everything I've been ranting tonight is all documented on my website, countervortex. Dot org. You can check it out online. And also, please check out my story, New Yorker Stand Up to Wireless Tyranny in the Village Sun, villagesun.com. Be in touch and let me know what you think. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. <laughs>